This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they have created a limited edition Everyday Hero shirt. There are only 2,000 of them available, and 100% of the proceeds are going to go to charity, and on top of that, for every purchase, they're going to donate an N95 mask to first responders in New York City, which is certainly one of the hardest hit areas in America during this crisis. And on top of that, as always, they still are offering the 15 percent discount to all listeners of Behind the Shield using the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And I just want to go over some of the products that I've featured in the past that I think are incredible. So you have the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great, comfortable alternative to the heavy, cumbersome duty boot. You have the uniforms, some of which I wore over a decade ago in Anaheim Fire, which I think are some of the most comfortable and come in a variety of fits to make sure they actually do fit the responder. The AMP backpack, which I've used from hiking to loading with plates on a cruise ship to exercise in, to traveling across the world when I see family and do interviews. And then more recently, the shorts and the jeans are incredibly comfortable. I've been using them as well and some of the flashlights. So there are so many things that will add value to your work life and your home life in their catalog of products. So just to reiterate again, go to 511 Tactical, that's 511-T-A-C-T-I-C-A-L.com. Use the code SHIELD15, save 15% and make a difference in your community. Welcome to episode 316 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Kevin Pennell. Now, Kevin has worked both in pre-hospital and the hospital setting, especially in the disaster management arena. So a great conversation to be had at this time. This recording was actually done as we were entering the pandemic, and I was going to release it soon after. And then I realized that if we had not applied these philosophies by now, it was too late for those next few weeks because we were in the midst of it. So I held off to push it out now when hopefully most of us are emerging the other side and looking retroactively at our responses, hopefully asking how we can do some things better. So I think this is far more pertinent now. So if there are a couple of comments that sound like they're dated, that is why it's a few weeks old. But I think this discussion needs to be heard now as we are either preparing for a second wave or any other large incident that may affect our communities. Before we get to this interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The five star ratings really are making us more visible for people looking for a podcast like this. And then, as I mentioned every week, this is a free library for you, the audience to use personally to share it amongst your department. And it's listened to worldwide, which is phenomenal. And all I ask in return is that you help sharing, that we help grow the reach of this podcast and get these incredible men and women stories to every single person on planet earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Kevin Pennell. Enjoy. Kevin, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Absolutely. I really appreciate you having me. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, I am in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is just in southwest Virginia uh, near Jefferson National Forest. Uh, so beautiful mountain country down here. Great. Now, I love to always start at the very beginning chronologically. So where were you born and tell me about your family unit? 
Sure. Um, I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and then stayed there a little bit, but really grew up in central Virginia near Richmond, uh, just south of there. Uh, mom and dad, uh, one sister, uh, grew up kind of, you know, in, in suburbia, uh, but, but in Chesterfield County there. Uh, and so that's, that's who I am or, or how I grew up there. Um, you know, played some sports in school and did the soccer leagues, a uh, little football in high school and, and track and wrestling and things like that. So pretty, pretty standard kind of upbringing. Um, got some, <clears throat> some good guidance and discipline. I, I was in the Navy, which I'm sure we'll discuss, but my dad was a, a Navy guy. So he definitely, um, got some discipline there growing up and, and working parents. So the, the latchkey kid of the, the nineties, I uh, definitely fit that. And you say, so your dad was in the Navy. What did your mom do? Um, she worked also, she was an executive assistant to, um, you know, like, like CEOs and stuff of, of companies. She worked a lot for some of the big insurance companies that were in the area I grew up. And then she, she did that work as well, uh, throughout, uh, her life. Right. Now we're going to talk obviously about organizing, you know, large agencies, large, uh, responses to specific events is there any element of your childhood that you thought gave you the tools to excel in this one area i th- i think probably because p- part of growing up um before my navy time i joined the navy i was 19 so just just after high school after i didn't have a stellar academic career my last year of high school and then a semester of um community college, I think probably the, the most beneficial was, um, so my dad's guidance and that, and that kind of military bearing that, you know, he showed me and, uh, some of the discipline, I, I didn't always follow that, but I think that's a piece that, that stuck with me. Um, but, but really growing up, I wasn't big on, on that. I was decent at school when I focused and, you know, like, like most people, uh, then when you don't, you don't do as well. But, um, I think it was really my time once I, I joined the Navy that was more formative, I think for the, for the kind of what I've done and what I do now. Right. And now you mentioned about the soccer. So going into the military, I like to, to ask this. So was your fitness at a high level? Um, you know, how, how were you kind of prepared for the boot camp? period of your life i um so like probably other folks many other folks um had seen the movie and loved navy seals thought it was cool watched all those movies uh, read books vhs tapes to date myself a little bit um so (laughs) so i was in in pretty good shape in high school um and, and so i was in decent shape by the time i you know thought i wanted to do that and finally went and signed up and kind of surprised my parents and said hey guess what i'm i'm joining the navy um, and so I actually took some swim lessons. I could swim, but wanted to be a little bit better and kind of prepared. So my fitness level compared to the fitness level you're kind of pushed to in boot camp was good. Um, and I say that um, pretty active now. And looking back, the 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 level of fitness for boot camp uh, it it doesn't have to be super high to kind of do well. I will say. Uh, and you know I went through a 94, so it could have changed a bit. But um, but I was pretty well prepared. Right. And did you have aspirations to go to Buzz? I did. Uh, I actually took, uh, and this is, you know, again, the, the early start of life lessons and being prepared or not being prepared. Um, so I, I certainly did. That's I signed up as a corpsman. So I was a hospital corpsman. Um, that was a fast track to get to buds if you, you know, sign on the dotted line with your recruiter there. And so in boot camp, I took the 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 test, the screening test, uh, didn't pass, uh, and then 
took, I'm trying to remember if I took it again because I was in Great Lakes, stayed there, um, and then had later on another opportunity um, to, to take it. So I had kind of prepared, uh, but was not obviously at the level that I needed to be. Um, and, and knowing, you know, from research and hearing other folks that did make it, you know, that's the bare, bare minimum, that test, let alone making it through. So, uh, but again, more more early lessons on if you think you want to do something, make sure you're actually prepared both mentally and, and physically for it. Yeah. Now, with the Corman um, role, obviously, anyone that's kind of post 9-11 Corman is probably seeing a lot of uh, action, for lack of a better word, either whether in the combat setting or in the hospital setting, if you're out in the field. What was that role like in 94, though? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you hear that kind of the peacetime service and, and this and that. And um, I started off once I graduated core school, uh, ended up at what was Bethesda Naval Hospital. It's combined now, I think. Um, and so I was in, I was doing administration at first, you know, I, and it's like I think any school when you come out, you don't really know how to be that thing. Um, so I, I finished core school and I, you know, had these medical kind of training and so got there, worked in administration, got to do some training um, cause I, cause I did well. And then I actually got to work in critical care. So I was, a, a an intensive care unit corpsman. So I actually got to get the same level of training that our Navy nurses did, um, became an EMT, did advanced cardiac life support. So for me, even though we were in peacetime, I actually treated and saw a lot of, um, you know, trauma or critically ill patients or end of life, a kind of a mix, anything you could see coming through a, an, an ICU and actually ended up doing some special event uh, support in the cap, national capital area. Um, but, I, but I definitely wasn't, you know, shot at, I wasn't rotating to the green side, as they say with the Marines or, or other field units. And when I graduated core school, it was very heavy into, you know, pick a hospital based on where you rank in class. Um, and not many, <clears throat> excuse me, rotations of core school graduation, graduating, graduating classes were going to the Marines. You could do that, I think, later on with your rotation. But yeah, it was definitely a more hospital-based and and blue side or maybe ship-based assignments out of core school. Right. Now, what was the decision to leave the Navy? Um, so I was in um, from 94 to 2000, um, had put in, like I said, plenty of work, um, seen a lot of things. And, and around 2000, um, those Microsoft certifications computer hardware and, and the transition from if I wanted to stay maybe as a paramedic or become a nurse, I could do that. Um, but I, I didn't want to anymore at the time. Uh, and there wasn't as good of a, Hey, we'll take what you did in the Navy as a corpsman, give you this much credit to be a medic. And then you can just test on these things. And now you're a civilian paramedic. I think then you still had to go through whole courses depending on whether you'd gotten your medic or EMT before, or obviously nursing school. So, uh, a buddy of mine that I, that I served with, that was also a corpsman. We started taking the, the certification and computer classes, um, in the area and then landed uh, pretty good gigs, um, on a government contract, uh, in the area. So it was, it was really, a we saw the opportunity. It was, you know, an IT boom and we had interest. We were computer, you know, folks on our own on the side. And so that was really the catalyst for that. Right. Now, what was that like to transition from, you know, whether it was peacetime or not, still being a part of a, a life-saving team to being behind the screen programming? Oh, uh, way less stressful <laughs> for, for sure. You know, when you're, um, 
you know, whether you're, you know, an EMT on the street, I was, I was a volunteer firefighter when I was younger too. So, you know, running those calls or doing a code in the hospital or something like that, um, is, is a lot higher, you know, stress and pressure than, uh, when I started, it was the project to do like windows updates and just bring in computers and pull the hard drive and do this and that. It was a, a great ground up learning experience that would benefit me even now. Uh, but you know, so you learn, which anything does, you know, you learn boots on the ground and when you get up to different levels or different avenues, you know, in technology or in that field, it's helpful. So the, the transition from that aspect was it, it, it was, it was pretty easy from the standpoint of it was a different kind of pressure. No one was going to die. Lives weren't on the line. It was more, you know, pressure from leaders if their email was late or their laptop wasn't ready and stuff like that. So it, it, it really prepared me to handle those kind of things. Right. Now, was that for the Department of Health or was it a different role that you, you did it for the Department of Health in Virginia? Uh, yeah, so this was um, just right after I got out, uh, you know, in, in 2000, 2001. So between then, my I started with uh, the Department of Health in 2010. So between when I got out and then, I had worked in IT for a while, got up to the manager role, went back to school using the GI Bill and gotten my um, home limit security and emergency preparedness degree. Um, and then got into electronic medical records while I waited for you know, different hiring processes. I wanted to use that degree and work for the government. Um, and then was lucky enough to get picked up uh, by the health department as a local health emergency coordinator. Right. So then, so walk me through that journey then from then to when you really got exposed to, you know, disaster management, because as we spoke briefly before we started, one thing that I've noticed and I've always stayed at the fireman level, you know, I've been a boots on the ground kind of first responder, um, is the you know the classes the 100 200 uh, 600 etc that we have to take i mean I'll, I'll be honest every time i've ever seen anyone take it it's kind of pencil whipped by whichever group that was doing it um and i'm sure it's, it's completely pertinent at a certain level and there's areas where it applies but um for a lot of us i think you know simplicity is the key and i think a lot of the people that i saw take those really came away not understanding what they just taken um that being said obviously any one of these departments anyone listening right now could be exposed to a very small version of a you know mci or wildland fire or, or a large uh potentially large incident all the way through to god forbid a 9-11 katrina something like that so um how did you find your way into that kind of arena and what were some of the things that, that you initially saw pros and cons for the way we were doing it um, so yeah, in 20 and 09, when honestly I was looking to, you know, to, to fill that role and hopefully get hires at local health emergency coordinator. Some of the prerequisites were the online, like you mentioned, incident command 100 and 200. And so you're right, you click through, there's a bunch of slides, um, you know, and, and it, it's not super entertaining. And to your point, you don't go, Oh, here's how I directly apply that, which like a lot of book learning or classes, it's hard to get until you actually go to try and do it. And so I don't know that I knew it was right or wrong until I actually failed and succeeded applying it. And, and from early on when I got the position, it was, you know, my goal was to make sure that everyone in the health department was ready to do like what's happening now um, at, a, at a small level and at this huge level. 
And so as myself, and, and I was fortunate, you mentioned 9-11, so some of the mentors that taught me the higher level classes, like 300 and 400, and in particular, the incident management team specific courses, some of them actually were the ones that were called in to help uh, New York Fire Department in New York City manage the aftermath of that. And that for, because incident management wildland wise has been around for a long time and then it, you know, crept in more to all hazards, but you're right. It, it's like, how do I apply this? And I think, and, and I'll touch on it when I became an instructor is, is it's all in the context of the instructor and, and how you kind of lay that out for people that can really give them the value. But as I started to see, you know, trying to apply it for the public health department just with us and then working with police and fire and EMS and all our other government partners. And I worked mostly uh, so for the state, but in a local district. So you're, you have this kind of interesting matrix. Um, and so as I worked with police and fire partners and we, you know, tore down silos and got our egos out of the way and, and, and really, I really latched onto it as a public health person, which was kind of a non-traditional, you know, it was a public safety thing largely, even though there's, you know, I wasn't the first public health guy ever to use ICS. That'd be crazy, but I really got into it. So advocated for it because when you do follow the incident action planning process and you use incident command system, um, but you're not killing people with all these form names or, no, 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 you you know, I'm the, the NIMS police, as we say, you have to do it just like this, but you actually are, are practical in how you apply it. And and when you teach it, then then it provides a, a lot more value. And, and then people tend to become more accepting of it. And, and for me, that happened, too. I saw the applicability of, you know, early on in the first couple of years of getting involved in higher level incident command system training and then the incident management team, probably, you know, two, three years after I started in health emergency coordination, um, really saying that it works when you get people together and you have one process and one plan. And, and that was the benefit. And, and some great friends of mine that are, they're also really leaders in the space did so through this, this, um, planned event that happens a couple of times a year where, you know, and, and you do this in, in special events or other things, whether it's police and fire, they may not be on the same plan or they have their own plan or, you know, you, on the calls day to day, like it's pretty seamless. You just you get together and do what you have to do. When you have planned events, it's almost harder, you know, of who has what command post and who's in charge and who's patch and who's collar device. So a great way for us to do that with the partners I worked with locally, whether it was a health thing or, a, you know, a public safety thing was to just start doing it. Just start saying, hey, everybody and get leadership support like anything else. Uh, let's pull together. Let's start with this one event that we do all the time. And this is what one of my, one of my good friends, you know, helped make happen was, um, let's just have one check-in process. So let's all just go to the same place. And so if you just start tripping, chipping away at those, that's when I really started to see a benefit and, and being fortunate to be there kind of at the ground floor starting, just like I started with computers under desks, pulling hard drives. I started with a, a notepad or a, or a list of sign-in sheets, you know, just learning my way from the bottom up. Yeah. So, so one thing that I've, I've, I guess the, the window that I look through as uh, a firefighter, just staying at that rank is the potential is for an MCI. That's probably the most hands on one that we're going to be able to initiate if we're, you know, on a rescue with two paramedic firefighters or, or EMT paramedic firefighter. Um, and we pull up on whatever event is we're, we're really starting that process. And I was taught 
in my opinion, very well when I was out in California. Uh, Anaheim was part of the network there, and I think it was Newport Beach that was one of the the people that or well, the departments that spearheaded the Star Triage, and fantastic. And then you know, fast forward to doing this podcast, I talked to John Spira, who was one of the first responders on the Aurora shooting, and then you look at like the. 32 can do, you know, James, they were all running out of a movie theater. Of course, their respirations were above 30. They were just, you know, running for their lives, you know, and it was dark. So you couldn't see cap refill or, and then, um, had Ryan Starling on who's a SWAT medic in San Bernardino. And they were talking about, um, rather than having, um, like, uh, the, the, um, medical staging, you know, right by the event, that you have it between the event and the hospital. So that way everyone's kind of heading towards the hospital and that way you can catch the police cars that grabbed a patient. You can grab all these other people too. So what the kind of reason for this preface is what I realize is that in all the best intentions, some of these kind of hard written protocols have obviously areas where they're just not going to work. But it seems like there's more of a need at the responder level, not again at the you know black and white paper. Um, but for us, there's a need more for principles rather than kind of rules and regs. So what what would be your your principles of managing large incidents in an expanding way? Yeah, I, I think um, that's a great point because the the process that as you mentioned, sometimes unless you're really into it, it's just, it feels like you drone on. Maybe you were told you have to go to this training, et cetera. But if, if you collaborate, the process is what can actually bring the folks together ahead of time to build the relationships and communication and understanding of, Hey, generally this is together. What should happen in Aurora or Las Vegas or, or wherever else that, you know, these shootings or attacks have happened and if you at least have that framework and you've already had the relationships and you understand, uh, you know, this kind of gets into that, you know, how I've distilled down, you know, these the, the planning P, uh, you know, for folks that have taken the ICS process is, is these foundational four. And initially, one of my mentors broke it out as like the big three. And I said, that's awesome. And I was pushing that and sharing that. And I said, you know, what else is tying these together? And I said, communication. So to me, if if anything's going on at any level, and I'll give a couple examples of a, 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 a small on the street kind of thing that you're mentioning versus you know, something big, um, is if you know ahead of time because you've planned together and, and, and you've communicated together and, and you've had good dialogue and, and there's no egos and silos in your process together ahead of time, then you can you can ahead of time know, hey, here's the objectives generally for some of these things that happen or right on the spot. Um, here's our org chart. And, and to me, sometimes, you know, it's simple to have boxes and lines connecting them to just have an idea versus using all these fancy ICS forms. Um, and then if we have resources and then we communicate those four things, those foundational four things can solve almost any problem. And to your point of let's say it's an MCI that, that really, you know, doesn't have to be a 30 person thing, but like a car accident and you're overwhelmed and there's a lot of folks, if you know, and this is where I get into or speak about, you know, the way that this is taught or, or folks understand it is, you know, f- folks on the street are actually using ICS. As you mentioned, you're kicking this off all the time. So in an MCI, you know, Right, you're going to initiate that start triage as fast as you can. You're going to do the best that you can. Communicate how many patients you have if it's to your 911 center. So you're already 
communicating and setting objectives and knowing your objective is to triage as many patients as possible, as quickly as possible to treat them as quickly, you know, and, and they don't have to be these really fancy, you know, written out things. You just know as a paramedic or an EMT or a firefighter, I know this is what I'm going to have to do when I get there. And then I know the structure and, and this is one thing fire why they've led. And you mentioned, um, you know, California LA fire is a huge leader in the development of incident command for the, the nation, um, is fire has traditionally been a leader in the incident command system a lot of times because fire marks on scene, they say who's in command, they have divisions, you know, for a fire and for an MCI similar. So it, it, it's the same concepts and it's the same stuff that's happening. And then resource wise, if you're managing that MCI, that car accident or even something bigger, you know, you need more people to move people more, uh, you know, backboards if that's still in your protocol uh, or whatever you're using. I know there's been some talk about those and collars and things and, um, or, you know, you need stuff and, you know, you need ambulances to move people. And then communication wise, you're face to face talking and you're using, uh, radios all the time. So you're doing all the things that you need to do. So if you take that and you look at a planned event and I say sometimes planned events are harder because there's more opportunity for politics and silos and egos because you have more time. But it's the same thing. But the, the, what, what really needs to happen is folks need to agree on combined objectives. Uh, there's smart objectives. You know, there's specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-based so that everyone uh, from every agency knows this is what we together are working on. And, and often that's one of the biggest challenges um, is to get all those folks together that can keep, kind of give that directive. Um, and you see that. And you mentioned Aurora and I mentioned Vegas and if you look at after action reports from a lot of things um, that, you know, there's areas for improvement that involve we should have worked together or, you know, coordinating together. There's also great examples where, you know, for other shootings where folks had trained well and they, they did that rescue task force really efficiently and they had co-located command. So there's there's variation with that uh, out there. But that's really the, the gist of it is use the process to bring people together and, and ahead of time, everybody has an idea, both for your regular planning, you know, on a sunny day and then a contingency plan if, if the worst happens. Yeah. Now, observationally, I have seen in my career with, with four departments and, you know, one protects a theme park is extremely well prepared. There's a lot of training, a lot of interagency training. Communication between the agencies is fantastic. They just, you know, take it on the chin and do large scale you know, practice uh, scenarios. And um, so, you know, when it happens, because I went through some of those when I was there, you've already kind of dress rehearsal at least some sort of event that you can expand or, or contract. Conversely, I know of another department I've worked at where their entire MCI plan involves a van that's full of backboards, period. So I have seen, in my opinion, you know, the, the, the polar opposites and the underlying thing seems to be an understanding of what could happen. Doesn't matter if it might, it could happen. And then taking that seriously and creating as, as close to realism in the training, interagency training as possible. I've kind of preloaded that question, but what, what's your observations of, um, departments, whether it's, whether it's fire and EMS or whether it's something completely different? where they succeed in planning for any sort of event like this and, and where they fail. Um, I, I have a very similar experience, you know, for similar things of special events or incident response. 
And where I've seen success is where I, and I keep mentioning egos and silos. And that's one thing when I've taught incident command or incident management classes is, is even a slide that starts with these are our enemies. And so that obstacle has to get out of the way. So it's this is all of our special event to plan for. This is all of our you know bad thing that could happen. Uh, and then from there, really working together in a I don't mind if you leave the planning process and we all work together. Um, you know, regardless of what patch or color device you have and, and, and that kind of things, but, but also doing it with folks that are, you know, working towards it. And, and we were fortunate, um, when it worked well to those of us that really got into it, you know, worked through, got credential and there's, you know, to actually get credential as an incident management team member, you, you know, take the class and then you have to do the work and then someone has to observe you and then you have to get signed off and then release. And so it's, it's, it makes sense. And so I've found that that is helpful. So if you can work folks through a credentialing process and then allow them to help bring people together, then that, that really makes a difference. Um, for, for specific, specific events I've seen where, or even being part of the planning where I wasn't necessarily in a position to, um, you know, make the decision and say, no, we're going to do this, but to influence it. Um, I've walked out of planning meetings where, you know, where, you know, folks are twisting the radio going, well, I guess we could use this channel. And for, for the times when folks, for whatever reason, for, for their own stuck in tradition or, you know, whatever it is, won't, you know, one, if they don't want to use ICS cause they're like, Oh, that's just forms or that process. They don't, they don't get it. Cause maybe they had a bad experience and how they took the class or it's never been pertinent to them or whatever. I think if some planning process isn't going well, sometimes you have to just like the training you mentioned, make things realistic. And I've had to have a discussion that says when I was more on the EMS side, to say, hey, hey, look, you know, it's not just these forms. If if our rescue task force folks or our EMS strike teams can't find your person that just got hit in the head with a brick during this civil unrest, that's a problem, right? So this process we want to work together and these forms we want to put it on so your people can have a piece of paper that says, here's the channel, here's how you call a mayday, here's, you know, that's the whole point. It's not to sit in a room and bore you. It's not because I want to be in charge. You can put your name all over everything, but I think what, what folks need to do and, and it's similar for the more tactical piece of it. Like if you've taken a, a tactical combat casualty care course and, and I took that and I was instructor for that for a little bit, if you use blanks or simunition and you use actors that are screaming and freak people out, that training will be very valuable when remembered It'll be nothing like the real thing, I'm sure, for folks that have been through that, but it'll be as close as you can get. And, and that's, I think, whether it's doing a, a drill on, hey, how do we use these radios or a full-scale exercise or making sure that every event, every planned event we do, we're going to follow this planning P, this incident action process. We're going to work together. And then next year, if we have like an annual event, we're not just going to scratch out the dates and write new ones in. We're going to revalidate everything. That's where you will get the most bang for your buck. And realistically, that's where you will keep your people and the public safer. Yeah. And I think that that thinking about it as you're talking, there's a danger of you know many people that are in higher positions. Some of them have done a very academic focused journey to that rank. And so in their mind, they were like, well, we're just going to use ICS. Well, that's all well and good. 
But do your entire department understand what that means? Have you actually gone through the motions of what that will look like at the medic level, the EMT level, the firefighter level, the engineer level? You know, and I think that that's again probably one of those those box checking um, areas where you might think you have a plan in your mind, but the reality is your department is not going to understand what the hell you're talking about when it comes to actually enacting that plan when you're on the back foot. Hundred percent, and and for, you know, I've, I've done exercise evaluation for similar things for a mass casualty or, or shooters or something, and and very often, uh, or depending on, but you know, it's we didn't co-locate our command centers. We've never practiced this before, and you're exactly right. I mean, you you have to put the time in. You have to realize that, like anything, nothing. You're not going to work the kinks out of any process that's on a piece of paper just by talking about it you have to get out there and practice it i mean it's just like you know when you become an emt or a medic you can read the list of what you do for an assessment but until you put hands on somebody you, you don't truly understand how to do it well yeah and then you realize you can discard a lot of that stuff like i don't need to do it <laughs> head to toe and they just got a splinter in their thumb <laughs> you know and, and that's that's a great analogy because there, there's been times um i was uh with the, the, the state for a while doing like a response officer. And so one of the responses was to help support this big fire. And, you know, in your head, I'm going through all these things I learned and I'm credentialed in and this. And when you get there, what, what you really need to do to be effective using really any process, but this you know, incident command incident management is to, and what it made me think of is if you've seen like the Iron Man movies or the Avengers, and Tony Stark is, you know, he he moves his hands. He's got like this virtual map thing up and it explodes and then he, he picks what he wants is mentally as, you know, uh, and I was a planning section chief. So that's the person that facilitates a process. We're the ones that have to get really, really ingrained in the process because that's our job. Show up and see what we need and facilitate the process is to be able to go, OK, I need this. I don't need that. And, and so for that fire. Really what they needed was food because their folks had been up fighting a two-block fire. They needed portajohns and they needed accountability for their people. And there are, if you look at the books, I don't know how many other things that you could do. But right then, they didn't need us to show up and say, we need to fill out these forms. We need to do this or that. They needed help tracking their people to keep them safe. They needed food and, and hydration for their people. And they needed, you know, uh, portajohns, and so that that's really where you get the value of, as you mentioned, actually getting out there and doing it, and then going, oh, I don't need to go sit over there and start doing forms because it's not helping anybody that's actually on the ground. And, and a key principle, the key principle, I will say, for incident command and incident management, is the boots on the ground and operations are who we are all there for, and that gets lost from you know, the checklists or the heavy collar device or the patch or whoever it is that we're not really there to, for the incident community. I mean, they'll prove it. They're in charge, but the whole point of keeping our people safe, having contingency plans, good medical plans in case our people get out of there is for people on the ground that happen to be the ones that are either supporting this special event or going in as a rescue task force or, giving a whole bunch of COVID-19 tests, like that's who we're here for. And so there can't be a disconnect or shouldn't be. And that should be a theme for everyone on the team, whether they're super ingrained in ICS or not, is we are all completely focused on those boots on the ground, you know, and their safety and, 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 and everything that they need. Yeah. Well, that was a great segue because you mentioned what I was about to ask you, which is obviously COVID-19. 
or uh, the Chinese virus, as I've heard it re referred to in DC from our leaders. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so that is an interesting take on this whole thing. I, I again, I'm, I'm a complete layman, and I try and underline that I'm not an expert in anything. I'm, you know, borderline bumbling idiot, but it gives you a different perspective because you're not coming from an area of expertise, and so I'm sitting back looking at you know, what's going on. And I'm not trying to split hairs as far as, you know, the, the isolation or any of that stuff, but how are we preparing our hospitals, our first responders, you know, those kind of things. This thing hasn't even exploded here in the US and everyone's telling me they're already out of masks. So right there, I mean, that's, you know, that's alarming. Another thing is that I this, this whole podcast was started and sadly, we just lost a fireman again here in Ocala, but for that very reason was because we were losing our men and women. So this became a mental and physical health podcast initially. And I'm seeing, I don't know if you saw when I shared this, there's that dipshit in Miami Beach that was talking about deliberately exposing all first responders so they can kind of um, herd immunity, I think was his philosophy. But the way that we are working, for example, our resident doctors, you know, 60 plus hours a week our, our firefighters specifically 56 hours a week plus if they even get to go home um and now we're we're turning around asking these people like right tag you're it we're all going to go hide in our houses can you just keep the country running for us while we're isolating so it's been very interesting to look at it because this isn't katrina this isn't 9-11 this isn't you know the paradise fire this is a bizarre thing where we're kind of you know, looking out the windows, waiting for this thing to blow up, seeing some startling images from other countries. Um, but yet it's not even here yet. And, and I see this kind of mania, even with some of these, you know, hospitals and, and departments. So what is your perspective? Like right, right from the beginning where you first were aware of, of this being a thing through to where we are now and again taking both sides what are some things that people are doing really well and then what are some mistakes that you're already seeing um yeah so it is interesting from the lens of someone who's you know the the mission statement if you will for me was to get ready to give um a 10-day supply of a medication to like 300,000 plus however many residents we had within 48 hours and that was the you know that scenario a lot of this came after 9-11 um, that was always the kind of the overall mission statement. So you practice towards that for things like this, for um, mass vaccination events like that you do every year given flu shots. And so I think um, to get ready for this is is to do what we talked about before. And, and, and I think it's the same process, whether you're public health or not. And I think what I'm seeing is the scale is hard. It's just like when you put and you test something. Uh, on a small scale, say I test two computers and they work great. And then I put a thousand in the environment. Well, I don't have all the variables for the thousand people that are using them that I do for the two people that tested it. Um, but I, I think, you know, for the way it's grown, the way that we're all told to, you know, shelter and isolate is, is very uh, aggressive, not right or wrong. It just is. It's, it's, you know, the, Worst case scenario that, you know, fortunately, again, my my teammates and, and partners in public safety plan for. We always made sure we had um, public health uh, scenarios. And and the interesting thing is, you know, it, it's not an earthquake or a hurricane or a fire. And it, to me, it's it's scarier because you can't 
solve the disease with more water to put the fire out. You can't put a bandage on it because it's bleeding. You can't have more security because it's a bad guy. So that unknown, I think, elevates for sure people's fear, um, people's, you know, that don't know because public health, particularly epidemiology, you know, those are the disease experts, the disease detectives or public health doctors and public health nurses. You know, it's a very specialized thing that doesn't necessarily get a lot of play unless you happen to, like I did, latch on to incident management, hook up with your public safety partners and have a good relationship in your locality, your state, your, you know, wherever you are. And so, you know, one thing that should happen, and, and again, is to practice that, right? So when you teach a 300 class or or the one week long incident management O-305 like boot camp to get people into the incident management teams, uh, you should throw public health scenarios in there. And I, I think from some feedback I've gotten from putting either guides out, um, either you know audibly or posting them, some things that I'd used was people consulting, how do I teach healthcare workers how to use hospital incident command system? I'm working with these folks. Can you, you know, give me this template you use? And so that immediately to me speaks to not going through the training, not going through scenarios, um, folks, you know, not necessarily having practiced or trained up or admittedly, if you're not into the incident command system or incident management, you don't need to worry about it because if your day job is, to be, you know, a nurse or a paramedic or a physician, like you're not actively thinking, how do I make this section or unit or group or, or whatever? Uh, but I can see from some of that, that, that a lot of the practice and the training uh, and exercising hasn't been done a lot. I think in particular, maybe continuity of operations. And um, I spoke of this in, in one of my um, kind of, you know, I think I was actually on the road and recorded an episode uh, of talking about, cause I saw this with Ebola when we were screening patients at the, at the local level and state level, when we had, you know, some folks come into the country and, um, that outbreak and, and saw the same thing enough to know, you know what, this is kind of starting. Why don't we ramp up our personal protective equipment before there's a flood on the market? Like there is now, why don't we practice what it's like if someone shows up and says, I was just at the country that's, you know, has this disease of public health threat, and what would we do? How would we put them in a space and all that kind of stuff? So I think um, also an area I'm seeing that that maybe some folks haven't done enough that have an opportunity to do now. I mean, it's not too late. And and then build that into, obviously, the, the future. Um, I think also, you know, I just saw the, um, if you've seen, which is great, I may have even gotten it from one of your posts, but the the um, Walking Dead sound overlaid on the sh- on the toilet paper from Costco being ripped open. Yeah, that wasn't me, but <laughs> I, I did see that. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but things like that. I think the national word of because uh, again, unless something happens, folks don't pay attention because our internet's great. You know, we have pretty good deal here in this country overall. Um, is is the overall personal preparedness? Um, it, it needs some help. You know, if I get shelf stable food that won't go bad for three years, I'm pretty good for three weeks. If I go buy, you know, two dozen chicken breasts and like we actually have seen. So during COVID-19, you know, that's got this kind of quarantine self-isolation time. Um, there has been an earthquake in America. There has been a tornado. So, and that's one thing we, we talk about in incident management is just because this is happening here doesn't mean you're still not getting 911 calls all over the place. And so just because COVID-19 is happening doesn't mean that 
Mother Nature is not going to kick up a surprise. And so what if you just bought a whole bunch of perishable food and the tornado hits your area or even a bad thunderstorm? Now your power's out and you didn't happen to prepare with a generator. Now that's all gone. Or you, I guess you're going to have one heck of a barbecue, which which also, you know, folks do after hurricanes and things like that. But um, I, I think that level of national push, which almost reminds me of the old school kind of duck and cover, you know, Cold War stuff. But but really now a bigger push to if you have to stay at home, whether it's a storm or an outbreak or whatever, here's what you need to do to have food that won't go bad if you lose power, um, enough water and, you know, flashlights and all that kind of stuff. So I think general preparedness could really be pushed. Um, and, and I know local and, and state emergency management agencies work that all the time. It's just, I don't think folks pay attention cause it's not a need day to day. Um, so I think, I, I think probably personal preparedness and continuity of operations, uh, kind of across the board are areas that, that I think everyone's going to have a lot of after action and, and improvement plans for. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's one thing that we're definitely seeing. And like I said, you know, you mentioned about the toilet paper, we're seeing some bizarre, totally nonsensical things going on as well but i mean florida you know we're a state that deals with hurricanes even though honestly the most of them have missed us the last few years i've been down here um but yeah it's, it's something that's not even new to us and you know obviously things like plywood and water which is really bizarre because there's water in your taps until the thing goes right. through so right. you can just fill a bathtub but um you know but so i i get that but yeah i mean for anything i mean who knows what's going to happen croatia just had a, a horrendous earthquake i know right. um i think it was in wuhan itself they had one of the hotels they were using as a shelter collapse um so they were you know pulling people out of the rubble there um so yeah i mean that's a very very important point and that's that's the thing that's kind of my observation about this again is and I just posted about this this morning. There's a there's a there's a compassion element to self isolation. Most of us are going to be just fine, from what I understand from this particular virus. You know, you, if you're healthy, you're same as Ebola. You know, if you're healthy, you're just going to get ill and then get through it. But you can pass it on to people that that are you know are going to get really ill. It's going, in my opinion, it's going to get through most of us anyway. But you can at least slow that curve for the medical community, and that that does actually make sense to me. But what, from what I, I'm seeing, we're, we're hearing is, is huge scaremongering. Like if you walk out your door, you're going to murder everyone basically by breathing wise. There's this, yeah, this focus on hand washing for this airborne virus that we're dealing with. I don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely wash your hands, but you know, you're breathing it. So don't let people believe that as long as their hands are clean, they're not going to be able to transmit it. Um, yeah, but but I think there's there's just a lot of misinformation and fear is being used rather than like you said ed- education. It, it's it's almost insulting the way it's being said instead of hey here's here's the real facts of this. Here's who's most likely to get very very sick. Here's the group that's probably just going to have a really shitty flu for a couple of days. But here's what you guys can do to help your country minimize the impact of of you know what's going to come whether you like it or not. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's one of the scarier things to me about public health. And um, I won't get into the uh, environmental health folks that do like the restaurant inspections. That's a whole nother scary theme of what we what we see in, in restaurants being food. But the you know, the hand washing and, and thinking of, you know, if you had a, a fine powder and you you put it on everything, kind of like pollen, right? Like think about the spring and pollen. And then you touch it and then you touch it somewhere else and then you touch it in surfaces. And even thinking about now, 
you know, whether you order groceries and do like a, a click list type thing or, you know, pizza, the thought is, oh, everything's got something on it. Um, and, and I think the unknown that's pushed out there is did the person that made this have COVID? Did they, you know, which the likelihood, depending on where you are, I guess, varies. Um, but but yeah, I agree that the, you know, it, it's a bit of a, a high level of fear. Um, I, I think I can't totally discount it just from the standpoint of, of like you say, you know, if, if we that are healthy don't go all around and then happen to, you know, brush up against someone or go near someone that, that isn't or has underlying or, you know, then, then that's the best. Um, I think one thing I have to also think about is from the highest levels of, of leadership in various, you know, in whatever party, uh, is that there's also a sense of, well, if I make this decision, is it not just, not only is this the best for humanity, for our country, for us, how, how am I going to get called out about it? And, and I think the, we're so heavy media driven for all different aspects, but you can, you can tell in, you know, the media asking various people, the way that questions are asked aren't always just for information. It's like, what's the angle I can use to get the breaking news, which I think anymore breaking news seems to be on there all the time. So what is really breaking news? <laughs> breaking uh, news is know. nothing happened today. A cat, yeah. a cat yeah. survived getting hit by a car. Breaking it's news. A, <laughs> it's amazing. But, but it feels like more of an angle of that. So there's, you know, from, from different leaders that caution, I would imagine of, okay, what if I don't do this? And, you know, will I, and, and especially in the, in the year that we're in now, will I get elected? Well, won't I get elected? How's it going to affect it? And so I, from, from some of the public health folks and, and CDC and other folks that are out in these press conferences, um, I think they're doing a great job and they're really pretty straightforward. Um, I think for kind of the, the career politicians or politician folks, it's a, it's a, it's a big mix, I'll say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and sadly we're seeing some of that that political stuff really starting to roll in now. And I I don't even have cable, so I barely ever see it. But you know, it comes up on the on the the media every so often that you know these these people are starting to use this to to bolster their campaigns, which is nauseating. Um, I uh, from from a first responder point of view, I want to get your perspective on this. Um, Orange County Fire Authority, I saw had a a confirmed exposure you know someone actually had one of their crew members had uh, covid and so therefore i believe they told everyone that he'd been in contact or she had been in contact with which i think was 24 total people to self-isolate now again my understanding is firstly the numbers seem so skewed to me i'm a layman maybe i've got this completely wrong mathematically but i don't understand how you can start pulling out percentages if you haven't tested an entire nation of you know uh, you know fatalities for example like the only people I'm aware of that we know have COVID are people who got really ill or the wealthy that have gone actually got a test done. The rest of us haven't been tested, so we have no idea how many Americans have COVID right now. But my what's interesting to me is if we have to self-isolate every first responder who's been exposed, that's only going to last for a little bit, and then you're going to be out of first responders, period. So how do we overcome that? God, that's a good, that's a good question. I think it, it leads back to what what is your continuity of operations or really at that point, your continuity of government plan or do you have, you know, however many shifts deep, um, <clears throat> the isolation, I think, you know, when you do a, a, a trace investigation and, you know, for epidemiologists, uh, listen to this, don't, don't kill me. I was more of the, you know, organized things and then leaned on them for the expertise, but, but it's, 
you know, who are you, who could you have been close to in your family then outside and on, on there. So I think the assumption is, or the likelihood that they were exposed, I think with this, it seems because it's more infectious or, or you can spread it more, um, is, is probably one, I guess a couple of things I can think initially is, um, one to say, okay, are we going to be able to pull all 24 of these folks in, test them, treat them in the system that's already kind of overwhelmed or, Hey, just go ahead and, and take time to yourself. And if you get sick, call us. So we're really kind of in a crisis standards of care mode, which is again, this planning scenario that's sat on the shelf for a while. And, and it is this it's, Hey, let's say the system's maxed out and there's no stuff or we're running out of it. Now, what do we do? And so part of, I think the triage for the, you know, for, for COVID-19 is if you think you're exposed or, you know, you are cause you were tested and then we trace who you were in contact with, just all of you go ahead and take a break for the for the first responder community. Uh, I, I mean, it's a critical infrastructure piece. Obviously, uh, it's a big challenge in in the leaders adjusting their manpower using mutual aid. Do we reenact, you know, because because a lot of especially in bigger areas and, and probably in Orange, um, I don't know how many volunteers they do or don't have. You know, do we reactivate some of them if we had them or they're going to have to think, dig deep into you know, community emergency response team volunteers and and credentialing. And, you know, can we have kind of temporary almost deputization, so to speak, or, or, you know, whether they swear them in or not, but what, what are the people we can get that are credentialed that can still go to the sick person call or the, you know, not the high priority. They don't have to be a structural firefighter or something like that. But I think folks just have to get creative and they are um, staffing models now and look at all the options on the table that fit within you know, what's safe, but also what can, can serve the public in this, you know, crisis standards of care time. Yeah. Cause I think there's, there's two issues I see with this. Firstly, again, like I said, numbers reality is if that one man or woman, you know, they said it was exposed to 24. Well, again, understanding, you know, community college level microbiology, that means that they were probably around hundreds of people. They obviously got it from someone. Chances are if they're a firefighter and they were on one day on two days off, that, that respond, you know, that results in probably tens and tens and tens of first responders who then have been touching, you know, God knows who else. So, you know, for me, it's at one point, like, do we just say, like you said, if you become symptomatic, then you take time off in the meantime, you probably have got the same as you know a, a large portion of the of the population um and then you know with uh God, i lost my train of thought now what was i going to say with the other thing um oh yeah and then with with first responders the other thing is is the severity of this infection because as with like as i mentioned you know the 56 hour fireman the the 60 hour resident doctor they're going to be a lot more immune compromised than an average office worker about their same age. So, you know, we may even see this hit our first responder community harder than other communities because of the shift work. Yeah, absolutely. And being, you know, on the front lines of, I mentioned kind of the sick person, kind of, the, you know, a, a standard call, a kind of generic call, and, and someone has to go there and, and check it out. Um, I think that's also part of, and, and again, we did this with Ebola, and, and I've seen some protocols now, uh, at the 911 center starting that screening. So if, if you call it and it's not an obvious something that's not COVID, like it's a car accident or a fire, you know, we don't probably need to screen you. But right when you call us saying, do you have this travel history? Were you exposed to someone with a travel history or someone confirmed or sick or all that stuff of, of even pre-screening before a unit rolls out of the station? 
um, is even, you know, another effect that's happening and, and a way to maybe buffer sending folks out there to put hands on and expose them to patients. Yeah. I, I didn't watch the whole article, but I saw Vice was showing that the Netherlands is actually doing it differently where they're, they're not isolating. I think they're trying to, to get the exposure over with. So I don't know how their healthcare system is and if they feel like they're prepared for the numbers they've seen in other places. But, you know, that's the, the other thing is obviously if you, and it's a smaller country, if you, if you not encourage, but if, if the spread is organic, then the timeline is going to be shorter too. So it's an interesting perspective. I'm going to have to go back mm. and look at it. But I mean, that's another way of looking at it is not prolonging it, taking, you know, the, the hit as it were, but therefore minimizing the, the impact to the country as a whole. Right. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I'm, I'm not sure I'll be interested to see how that works out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big global experiment at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, and then there's another thing with the, um, with the numbers. So another thing that's got me pulling my hair out is the, the again, the, the, the nature of this podcast, the education for people on physical health, on mental health and, and seeing what an unhealthy population we have here in the U S, you know, and I don't see anyone causing a, you know, a global concern over cigarette use. I don't see it over the obesity epidemic, the the opiate epidemic, the the suicide epidemic, um, and yet that seems to be give or take a few anomalies that seem to pop up. Um, that's the the kind of subtext that no one's really focusing on. The the the, the seventy year old males that they were losing in China were also chronic smokers. So, what is what is the, from all the information you've seen? You know what are the the contributing causes to people who are losing their life to this virus at the moment from you know again <clears throat> my guide was and, and and is and will be the cdc so what i've seen on their site and in some articles and stuff but primarily cdc is like what you mentioned if you're already not in the best health either of your own choosing from smoking or you have chronic health issues um, that's a huge factor uh, in you know how this affects you um, I think there's been other folks, right, that that don't fit that mold that get it. Um, what's more behind that, I don't know. But by and large, the, the the same things that would make you more sick from the flu or something else, your underlying health conditions, um, lowered immune system from various, you know, maybe you're getting some sort of treatments or something like that are the same things that make you more susceptible to this. It is really what I've seen. So, and I agree with you. I mean, and, and in particularly things you've touched on, whether it's for your, your own mental and physical benefit, particularly for first responders, but really anyone, um, keeping active and getting active and exercising is, is important anyway, for so many good reasons. Um, but with this in particular, um, hopefully we, we see one thing I've seen is a lot of, um, increased home gym posts on uh, Instagram or other places. So hopefully folks come out of this a little healthier, but you know, hopefully not across the board that people uh, increase the time on the couch, but rather they decrease it, you know, through getting more active. But yeah, that's a huge underlying thing is, is the unhealthiness and why in America in particular, um, you know, we may have more susceptible populace than other places. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, the talk is always about the vaccination, which of course, of course, that has a place, but right. that's the magic pill philosophy that we seem to love so much here. And, and I hope that after this has come and gone, that there will be serious discussions about 
our obesity crisis about, you know, the pharmaceutical industry spraying our food with pesticides, feeding our kids fast food in schools, you know, all these things where we can address and make a much more resilient population so this isn't as terrifying next time it blows through. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, unfortunately for us in the world, particularly in America, um, hugely impactful or negative things have helped us learn from them and get better. Um, so I, I agree. I hope this helps the proactive health, uh, vice reactive health model in America a lot. And by model, I mean to the individual person. Absolutely. Okay. Well, then getting back to the emergency, um, excuse me, the emergency management side, logistics. We touched on, you know, supplies already seeming to be gone, whether it's toilet paper or masks. Um, how do departments plan you know, using some of these numbers they're seeing in other countries for their own cities and counties? That's a great question. I think initially, um, and there are federal programs, um, public health emergency preparedness or FET program, the hospital preparedness program or HPP, and a few other funding streams for emergency management that every year either give to the states, divide up to the states um, that people can apply for, and I think um, for now, if folks already have some of those funds, is looking at – and now it's kind of like you know, folks that waited to get suits during Ebola or other stuff. It's Everyone's behind the curve now, but lesson learned in the future is have a stash of stuff ahead of time. Think about uh, – and I saw this in, in the emergency management world, you know, and, and you may have seen it too, is after 9-11 – there were some pretty nice command vehicles that showed up on the streets, right? Because of, you know, more attacks and we need this. And then after the shootings, more organizations got helmets and vests and we're going to be tactical. And and some of those were used in the training we talked about, whether they did the training and some sat in a closet. And I think for uh, this is ahead of time, have a stash of personal protective equipment for you know, the majority and the majority of diseases kind of what's most likely, you know, a lot of them, and again, not disease expert wise, but are, you know, the mask, the um, goggles or face shield, gloves, suits, you know, that can cover a lot. And so if you've had the basics, then that's super helpful. I think at this point, there are states that are, there's a thing called the strategic national stockpile. And that's been mentioned in some press conferences that is a, a huge stockpile warehouse full of medical stuff for mass casualties or for biological things like this and and other supplies. And so emergency management, public health emergency management in particular, um, can work with their emergency operations centers to request those. What state that's in now, as far as, you know, being requestable or how that's going, I'm not sure just because I'm not not working in that field, but that's something that exists. Um, The other thing is is looking at um, emergency management assistance uh, compacts or or states helping each other or looking at the whole system of state-to-state resource management and cooperation really uh, or within locality to locality region to region i think now both the public and private sectors are hopefully talking to each other to say okay well what do you have here's what we have can we share and, and that's a you know a thing during you know, this, this time that's kind of scary is can we afford to share should we share because it's the right thing because we don't have any cases but you have 10 is is really a difficult balance that I think folks are probably facing right now. Yeah. Now you touched on a good point too. There was a lot of money, a lot of federal aid and, and grants um, post nine eleven, and I've seen those same 
you know the the teams that were formed those kind of things fast forward a few years that they're, they're they're wanting to, to shut them down okay we're not going to have another 9-11 now um, obviously it's extremely short-sighted the goal is to be as prepared as possible within within reason what what's your advice to departments for being able to hang on be able to to, to get the grants or the finance for the what-if contingency plans, because that's exactly what we see in, in a lot of these places is after the fact, they, they're tactical as hell. Well, it's too late. You just lost, you know, 100 people at your, you know, whatever it was. So how do, how do departments get ahead of the curve and persuade their bean counters, as it were, to invest in contingency plans, even though it may never happen? Huh. Uh, it, it's a, a big challenge. Um, and kind of like we talked about something, a lot of times something bad has to have happened to get there. Um, but I think to really dig into just like to get good at doing hands-on stuff, you have to practice hands-on stuff is to get good at continuity of operations planning. You have to really dig into your continuity of operations plan and to look at, let's say we have a hundred percent money, all the stuff we need, what can we do? Okay. Let's say we take 75% of that 50%, 25 and build those contingencies in so everybody knows kind of trigger points or at least can adjust to kind of like we're doing now. Hey, everybody's going to the office every day. Things are fine. Okay, now we're going to send some people to telework and then, you know, scale that down. So for for the public sector, for those, for those grant funds, it's to – part of it is to – you know, the bottom line is there's kind of a flavor of the day. So part of how you write grants – depending on what the money, what, what thing just happened when the money comes out is what the grants are going to be focused on. So I would be interested to see what the guidance comes out that says, Hey, we're going to put this money available for all these places to ask for, uh, but it has to fit these categories. And so that, that's kind of like what we were talking about with the nine 11 stuff or shooter stuff or something like that is, uh, or terrorist attacks on, you know, on the homeland or something like that is having to fit those categories is being able to word your request well. So one, it's practical, but two, it, it's, it fits the mission of what the grant guidance says it has to be. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like writing a really good paper or a really good project proposal. You know, if it, if it fits the language, from the job posting or from the proposal, it's, it's, it's a, it's a high likelihood that it'll get kind of picked up and, and approved. And that's no guarantee. But I think it's to really treat continuity of operations planning like a project and work through it really well. And the same thing for your grant requests is you've got to really put a lot of work and detail into those um, and not just, you know, kind of do the minimum and turn it in, especially as you've mentioned, as programs start to get, cut or reduced or go to all together, you know, part of that is just budgeting. And, and I don't know what happens, you know, higher up, but, but, you know, in the public health space that the funding has gone up and down depending on the year uh, and not just election years, it just has. And I think part of that's budgeting. So I think being able to adapt by making sure that your continuity of operations plan or continuity of government plan, particularly that finance piece, um, which equates to manpower and stuff, uh, is very solid and you've actually worked hard uh, on it. Yeah. Now, I want, I want to explore one more area just kind of popped in my head. So you have obviously a pretty strong background in IT. I heard one of Tim Ferriss's guests a long time ago talking about um, uh, online security. So I guess he was he was kind of hired to think of every different 
way that someone could cyber attack a business. And I thought that was such a great analogy for, um, you know, for what we do. So, you know, what are the parallels between, you know, what you see in, in, um, security in the computer world uh, and how you're able to kind of, be funded to, to figure out what's going to happen, what are the attacks going to be and mitigate that. And how can we apply that to our world? Um, fortunately, I, I've had the experience of with, you know, some of my incident management team teammates and other folks to, to actually do that. And some of those contingency plans are, they're actually using now to help with COVID response, but um, they're almost identical. And, and honestly, that's how I could translate a lot of what I did in incident management to what I do in project management but in this in this contingency planning kind of focus is the same thing. So in, in IT, I would look at what if we have full connectivity and power and everything's great and everybody can go to work. Okay, now what if power's out in this place or the network goes down? So you you do sit there and we did this for a big um, in 2015. There was a big bike race in Richmond, Virginia, and we were the team that that supported it. And so. Just like in part of the incident management process, there's a thing called a tactics meeting, right? That's where the the operations section, who are the boots on the ground, take those objectives that command agreed on and says, okay, now actually figure out the stuff and the people and the facilities and everything you need to do it. And then safety's right there. And so we not just for the whole event, but for every scenario we could think of, car bomb, storm, fire on the course, whatever – went through and did almost like its own planning cycle for each of those scenarios so that we ahead of time already at least had an idea. We may have had to pick it up and go, oh, that's that one line that, you know, we do. But you have to game them out to, you know, a pretty specific level. And, and it's not hard to do. It's, you know, it's like red teaming, they call it in IT or in, you know, in the military and public safety. Even you could do that is have folks think of what. And the other thing you have to balance, though, is what's practical, you know, a, a nuclear missile strike is probably not as practical as a car comes onto the course of your event, you know, so thinking about, okay, what are the most likely events we see now? Let's plan for those individually and then let's put all that together and maybe a contingency plan packet. Um, we did that and then we actually put them together on a checklist. And so you could do that for IT infrastructure. You could do it for a financial system. You could do it Absolutely. And ours were very public safety focused, actually. So it was, you know, active shooter, power outage, fire on the course, car on the course, MCI, all those kind of things. But just look at each one. And then with the resources you have for that event, go, okay, who would we send? So in a day to day mode, do the same thing and then say, okay. Um, and a key thing, too, for this continuity planning, this contingency planning is. So I have the one person that's usually in this position. Who are the two people behind them that can do this if that one person is sick or something happens? And I always use the term like hit by a bus, which is kind of a negative thing. But let's say they're out. Um, is do you plan three people deep? And then do you plan sunny day? You know, there's a thing called um, pace planning. So you have your primary plan, your alternate plan, your contingency plan and emergency. So it it. it kind of, as you would imagine, goes from, you know, great to worse. And so you have to work through those and, and they actually are the same thing, whether it's computer systems and it, that is a great idea. So red teaming, how do I hack into these? How do I, you know, take all those and, and, and get into that world, which I'm not quite as heavy in. Um, you could do the same thing, just swap out technical scenarios and technical stuff for public safety related things. 
Yeah, brilliant. I love that because, I mean, that made so much sense to me. And you don't have to have a complete protocol written down or, you know, a complete SOP, okay, if this car comes onto the course, if if this, you know, skydiver lands in the middle, whatever it is, but yeah. at least you thought about it. So you, you have some of that pre-planning. You can at least, again, expand and contract, but it's in there. It's, it's something that you have considered. So when it comes up, you're like, we were thinking about this, you know, tell me what you've got. All right, well, let's Let's shift to this gear now. But if it's never even entered your mind because, you know, it's like a boxer training but never actually doing any sparring, the moment you get punched in the mouth, you're like, well, shit, now what? You know, so, yeah, I mean, that's very <laughs> very layman terms, but but it just it, it really did make sense to me because then there's going to be a lot of overlap. So you don't have to do too much thinking. You're like, well, we'll do the same thing as we would in this scenario. But if you don't think about it, when it happens, you're going to be in reactive, not proactive mode, which is a horrible way to be. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, I, I, to try and get better and, and it's a balance, right. To get better and read after action reports and then share that, you know, whether it's verbally or via a podcast or something, and then also try not to be, you know, have folks go, well, you're armchair quarterbacking, but really you're just trying to say, Hey, I read this. Here's what it is. You see that, uh, all the time in, in like published after action reports is you can, you can read in that a lot of that didn't happen. Um, and to your point about not having to have a huge SOP, when when we took those full contingency plans, I went back and, and worked with some other folks, but I went back and made checklists. So in one page, you knew every section what they were supposed to do for the vehicle born ID or the car crash or the whatever. So even if you, I just handed you that one page, you could work it. The, the other thing you need to do is you can do this process. You can have the checklist. Is if you're particularly if you're a team that's going somewhere else to support an event or even if you're the team in a locality working with somebody else, but if you're going to another state or something is run them through that and tabletop that with them. So make the plan, do the process as a team, but then for who you're supporting, say, okay, here's a map. Here's what's going to happen. Here's, you know, tell me what you're going to do and then have, have people work through that. And to your point about not having to have a huge SOP, that's how I kind of really rely on even now as an IT project manager or did an incident management, those foundational four things. So if I know for any scenario you can give me like anything that we just need to get some quick objectives, we need to see who's who. So, you know, when you have an incident within the incident, you call it so that events going on and then that car comes on the course. Well, that's an incident within the incident or incident within the event. So, okay, what's the objective to solve that? what's the org chart we're going to kind of quickly put together and send there. What's the stuff and the people we need. And then how are we going to communicate and communicate ahead of time, knowing we know the regular radio channels and we know the contingency channel and our incident communication center, which, which we always used our number one dispatch folks for because they're the experts in it uh, to tell us, Hey, what's easier. Do we switch everyone to the one channel or do we move, you know, have them move us to a channel, but you've worked through all those different modalities of of you know getting everybody on the same page and and i've i've seen it and been part of events and planned for it where we did that and it it saved lives it made a big difference yeah it reminds me a lot of uh, jocko willink's prioritize and execute you know you hear him talk about a lot of the missions that they use as examples multiple things went on at the same time but again they they done that red team training so much that they were able to go okay this this is what needs to happen first so then we can get that domino effect working that will then carry on and, and create success and all the following things that we have to mitigate. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a, a huge fan of his and, and um, you know, with that in particular, it's, it's so true that 
yes, you have to put some time in and get training and do things, but, but you can also distill it down so that you, you save time, save lives and you're just, you're way more efficient. Um, and I think, you know, circling way back to the beginning that gets lost sometimes when folks teach incident command or incident management, sometimes because they're telling a lot of war stories that don't really help with the content or they can't relate the content to real stuff to your point of maybe it's an academic thing for them. So, you know, I took the course, I took the instructor course, and now I'm going to teach the course first. I took it and I went out in the field. Now here's how you can actually use this, but here's all the like two out of 10 things you actually need. Uh, and that makes a huge difference in, in many aspects, whether it's a, a known event or a no notice incident, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say about the war stories too, because I thought I'd met the world's best paramedic until I went to the next <laughs> training and, and they were apparently the world's best paramedic. So they're going to have to have a conference call to figure out who's like the best, best paramedic in the world. It, it was, <laughs> I, I did uh, uh, in my first podcast, I did an episode on like student instructor etiquette. And that was probably the first thing I thought of was if you're teaching like, sure, you can you can give some anecdotes and you should because that kind of shows, hey, here's a concept. Here's how it's been applied cool, let's go to the next thing. Um, but there's, yeah, I agree. There's lots of folks that'll tell you their whole life story. Uh, and then you're like, wait, what were we, what's the focus of this class? <laughs> Extrication. <laughs> we're talking about intubation. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, brilliant. So I want to transition a little bit. Um, how we first got connected is you started a podcast as well. Initially it was between the slides and now it's people process and progress. Um, so tell me about your journey into podcasting. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I had, like I said, at the local level and then state and, and in my area that I worked, um, I, you know, worked my way up to be able to teach and, and help build up our incident management team and then folks in the area and then got to travel and, um, you know, through, Corman time, public safety time, uh, being on call got kind of burnt out and was like, I, I think I'm, I think I'm done with the on call bit. Uh, and that's when I, that's when I transitioned into IT project manager and back into IT, but as a project manager, cause again, a planning section chief on an incident manager team is almost identical as a, and that was, that was one of the names I kicked around was PSC to PMP. Cause my transmission, uh, transition, cause they're almost the same. You, you help people through a process, you make sure they're talking to each other. Yes, there are some forms, um, but then you empower people. It's really the plan chief on the team really ends up leading the team without the incident commander kind of admitting they're leading the team. But you're facilitating the process. So you're always bringing people together. You're always the one people ask questions of. So as a project manager, I, I did the same thing. And so I love sharing knowledge. I love sharing the experience because I know it makes a difference. And if you've if you've ever taught a class and you have that student or students get the aha moment where they're like, Oh, that's the value. And then, and then they come back and they're like, Hey, I started doing this. Like when we have a crime scene, we start pulling together objectives and this, and you're like, that's, that's what it's all about right there. It's not about war stories like we mentioned or something like that. So I love doing that, but I didn't want to travel. I've got, I got, I'm married. I've got three kids and sure I could do it. It was just a, a preference and I was really burnt out, um, from being on call and, and responding to stuff. And, so I thought, you know, I like your podcast, I like Jocko, I like, you know, a bunch of other ones. And I said, that seems like a pretty good way for me to share some stuff that I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about and push it out there. And I did the search to see are there incident command focus or incident management or other, you know, similar podcasts. And there weren't a lot. Um, so I just researched, watched a lot of YouTube videos, um, 
on how to actually get set up and do it and get signed up and, and started started right at the basics just like I did in ICS with NIM 700 and ICS 100. And I used to do what's called the Between the Slides 5. So I'd look at the course, largely the, the, the curriculum or some key things and say, okay, what are five things someone that's going to take this class or has just taken it but maybe hasn't applied it? What, what do they really need to know? What's applicable? What's going to help? And then that would really be the focus of the show. And then I started to get into trying to interview folks. And uh, kind of like we touched on, there's a few folks where – you know, I find it. So I do jujitsu. I know you, you do jujitsu and it's like, you always, I want to talk about it a lot because I love it kind of like podcasting and, and, you know, I'm trying to get a, Oh, is there, is there a time in the conversation to talk about a podcast? And a few, a few folks, um, I think we had done this exercise of an interesting thing on a card and then someone reads it, you know, in your group and you have to figure it out. And, and I said, I have a podcast called between the slides. It was one of my things. And it was like, what? So, so I realized, oh, um, you know, if I have to explain to you kind of like a joke what it is and it's not really funny or, it's, or you don't get it. So I thought, well, let's, you know, focus on something. And then I really wanted to get into, which I hadn't done a lot of. I did one interview with with actually one of my good friends that's a, a police captain on why law enforcement didn't adopt ICS readily, uh, which was great perspective, I thought. And so started to get in a little bit more in interviews and thought, you know what, this is something that I think expands, you know, let's hear from people much, much like here, but let's also learn because I'm very process focused, you know, between planning section and, and project on what's the process they used either at work or for themselves. Um, and, and then how do we share that to, to help everyone make progress? And for me too, personally, like I was, you know, you mentioned Jocko and, and when I say I was burnt out, you know, I was staying up late, you know, um, having a few too many drinks, eating like crap. I was not in good shape. And then I hadn't listened to a friend of mine who was like, Hey, you should listen to this guy. You should listen to this guy, your Jocko podcast. And then I finally did. And about two and a half, three years ago, got on the get up early and exercise train. And, and so for me knowing, Hey, let's, you know, I really looked at myself. That was the process I get into and, and, and share that, you know, for other folks to make progress. So that was a really cool opportunity and I'm still amazed at the medium that, you know, you, you throw something out into the world and someone from India or North Carolina or somewhere says, Hey, I listened to this. It was great. Thanks a lot. It's, it's pretty rewarding. It's amazing. It really is. Now you yeah. said between the slides was the, was the name before. Have you considered changing it to slide into my DMs? I hear that's a popular phrase these days. <laughs> I don't think I've even heard that before. <laughs> I think it, I think yeah. it means message someone because I want to have sex with you. It's pretty much what I'm getting. So <laughs> you might have a way more downloads if you called it that. <laughs> well, that's the other thing too. Cause um, you know, I started, was I 45 and 46 now of getting into, I'm pretty, you know, pretty tech savvy, but getting into the, all the stuff that goes with this and then getting into the, okay, well, let me push out an episode and where do I need to post it and how do I uh, advertise it uh, was very interesting. So, you know, getting into kind of the, the hip stuff uh, has been a challenge. I just made myself sound really old there, but, but it, you know, it is interesting kind of figure that out and getting that rhythm and eventually, you know, at least a little bit you get into, okay, the, the content I think is good. Let me figure out now how to get this out there. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing with podcasting is marketing, you know, because you know, it's, it's a good product. I mean, you get these people on these, in these, these shows and they're like, my God, everyone needs to hear this. And it's just like, well, how do I get people to do that? And, you know, social media, I found 
the Facebook of yesteryear, I probably could put it on and get some some notice now. And I've talked about this a few times. Basically, I've got 5,000 friends. I use that term loosely on Facebook. And I'll post something. I, I shit you not, maybe four likes of, you know, anything that's actually worth looking at. So that's not even really that good an outlet anymore either. So you're right. It's it's getting that thing that gets people's attention. And then really it's back to word of mouth, in my opinion, and getting people to say, hey, have you heard Jocko podcast? Have you heard, you know, and getting them to really kind of shout from the rooftops about it. But it is, it, it's frustrating in a very good way as far as you're just excited but you, you get these people and you're like, my God, you know, like Kirk Parsley, when he first came on talking about sleep deprivation, I'm like, everyone working a shift needs to, every human needs to hear it, but everyone on a shift needs to hear this man talk. Did you, uh, so did you, you know, relating to folks that work shift work, did you reach out to a lot of your, you know, public safety colleagues like, hey, I put this out, you know, to help them spread the word and, and help them one benefit from it, but also as as part of that kind of exposure to something that's important. I didn't really do like direct contact. It was more, you know, again, using the social media as best I could. Um, and then definitely, you know, when I was when I was somewhere, I would go up to anyone. If someone's wearing a fire T-shirt, and even to this day, I'll do that. I'll give them a card and I'll say, hey, if I see, you know, the highway patrol where I'm stopping on on a break on the, the freeway, you know, I'll go over there. And so, so it's word of mouth. And I just, I'm just relying on that organic growth because I, I, when I first started, I sent emails to IAFF and all this guy, I got nothing back. And I'm like, okay, I, I need to use my time as efficiently as possible. I know how many emails I ignore on a daily basis. So I think it's just trusting. And it, it's been a, a slow growth. And obviously this thing, people aren't commuting very much. So even this is, I wouldn't say it's negatively affected it, but it's definitely had an impact on people seeing what's out next and being exposed to it but uh you know i think my i kind of go back to the other side which is just like you said if one person in india changes something they do in their department which may save their own life or someone else's everything else is a bonus anyway you've already won yeah i i totally agree and and i've heard because i listened to some other kind of podcast focused podcasts where it's like here's how you do this or that and you know, I've heard a couple times, you know, stats don't matter and don't look at the numbers. And but, you know, but as someone who is trying to get exposure, it's hard not to look at them and go, oh, that was a bad day. Oh, that's a good day. And and it does affect. But, yeah, I agree The you know, when, when folks reach out and again, it's you can sit in your house, record things and shoot them out there. And someone says, hey, this was really helpful when we planned this or that or, you know, help me through whatever. Uh, it's just amazing and really a, a privilege to be able to do it. And it's, it's, it's good perspective too, because, you know, we're talking about all, all the craziness that's going on now, but we're here on a nice internet connection and I'm, a, you know, in, in a temperature controlled places. And so it's, it, it's pretty amazing that, that it even exists. And, and I guess even now that the number of podcasts that are out there. Yeah. And the timing is great because I mean, for if there was ever going to be a worldwide, you know, social lockdown, this time now with audiobooks and podcasts is is a great great time to to do that because people can actually listen to these amazing men and women that have either host their own podcasts or or on the podcast you know like Jocko and Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss and all these people that you know by the time you go back to work you might be a different person <laughs> you know you might be like yeah. now I understand all these new things you know what? I'm going to quit my job I'm actually going to go do this thing I've always wanted to do and I finally have the motivation to do it 
Yeah, it is amazing. One suggestion or seed plant, it makes a huge difference. I know it has for me before. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, there is. It's called The Killer Angels. And it's about the Battle of Gettysburg. And, and one, it's just a good book. And I like history and, and Civil War history. Um, but it was also a reading assignment. I was fortunate to go on this thing called a staff ride, which is where with former military folks or high level like type one incident management, actually one of the guys was from from Cal Fire out there. Um, they take you around to different historic places. And we happened to be at Gettysburg. And the reading assignment ahead of time was so we, you know, didn't show up and know nothing about it to read that. And it, it's a great it's the book that the movie's based on, the real long movie. Um and it's got great leadership lessons just all throughout it. Uh, and that was highlighted when we did this. The staff right as part of kind of like incident management team as you come up as a leader. Uh, and it just was really developing. But that book was a, a great basis for it. And so I, I highly recommend it. Brilliant. I haven't had that one recommended before. So thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. So same question. Uh, movie. Um, gosh, one I really like, uh, again, being a nineties person is the crow. Uh, I think it was Brandon Lee's last movie. He actually died on set there, but I just, I like the soundtrack of it. Um, I think I have the song burn from the cure on my playlist now for, you know, my garage gym. Uh, but it's just a, a fun movie that I like, uh, another movie, if I can add another one real quick. And it's one of my friend and I always watch the one that got me to, you know, make a change and listen to Jocko is uh, saving private Ryan. It's just, Super impactful, a great study in teamwork and leadership, uh, and it's just a great movie. Absolutely. And the Band of Brothers is another incredible series they did alongside that. Oh, yeah. All right. Then what about uh, documentaries? Any of those you've seen recently that you liked? Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of the Ken Burns series, and I mean almost all of them. I think I like the Civil War just because I like you know Civil War history, but um, Ken Burns documentaries – kind of the library of them are just uh, they're just outstanding pieces of work yeah i'm just finishing up the vietnam one i'm on the one where they've all come home now and they're starting to see all the the mental you know effects of of being out there and yeah it's it's so well done it's it seems to be you know, through my lens very impartial i mean they've got pro-war anti-war uh so yeah it's a really really amazing amazing documentary yeah they are all right. Um, next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, medical community, and everyone else on planet Earth? Wow. Um, I think if really after COVID or even during, if you could get someone from the CDC, um, particularly there's a there's a program they have. Um, I may get the acronym messed up, but it's um, like emergency responder, emergency responder health monitoring. So ERHMS, it's a whole program. Folks involved in that, and it has to do with, you know, before deployment, screen them, during them, track them, and then after, screen them. So it's it's really focused on, you know, the, a lot of the folks that listen to this. And it, CDC came up with it. I went through the training a long time ago, but but someone to speak to that because they're also tied into this thing we're talking about that you can't see. You, you can't put water on it. You can't put more security on it. Um, and I think that would be a great perspective from someone with a higher level of like disease prep and that kind of knowledge, um, I think would be a huge benefit. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I reached out to a couple of people. I think we, we talked about this when, when we first spoke, but obviously my timing sucks because right now those people are busier than they've ever been. So probably when it dies down, some of the, the great people that emerge from this, I'll be able to get retroactively and we can talk about it that way. 
All right. So then last question before we talk about where we can find the podcast and reach out to you. What do you do to decompress? Um, I, I get up pretty much every day. Times may vary, but pretty, pretty strict. And I exercise in my garage gym. I started in a big, big shed kind of added and, and almost literally followed that, you know, Jocko advice of put a pipe up in the rafters and start doing pull-ups and do push-ups. And, and now I've been fortunate to have kind of a bit more of a garage gym, but, but exercise in the morning. Um, I do jujitsu three or four days a week in the morning, which, you know, if that doesn't take the stress out of you, at least when you're done, cause you're exhausted, then I don't know what will. Um, and then I, I still enjoy a video game now and then, but, but I think that the garage gym and, and jujitsu are probably two of the decompressions that, that are regularly on my schedule. Yeah. No, I, with the, with the aggression thing, I couldn't agree more. I used to do, um, Muay Thai in Orange County, California, and some of the drivers there are kind of douchey. And, you know, on the way there, you get all wound up. And then by the time you're driving back, someone could cut you up. You're like, I don't care. <laughs> I got <Yeah>. nothing left. <laughs> it, it's amazing because in perspective too, it's like, you know, if, if you're working in an office or even in a station or somewhere and someone complains or they're frustrated about just the smallest thing, your mind's already just chilled out because you're either totally exhausted or beat up or, or again, you're like, oh, okay, that's really no big deal, but whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it definitely underlines that whole, it's not what happens to you, it's how you respond to it. Because, I mean, it really does illustrate that on the, you know, before jujitsu versus after jujitsu. All right. All right. Well, beautiful. So let's talk about where we, people can find the podcast first. Sure. Um, people process progress is on kind of the major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, um, iHeartRadio, Google, all those places. Um, if folks have questions, um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, Kevin Pinnell, um, or people process progress at gmail.com. If they have direct questions about, you know, getting your partners together in locality, public health, anything like that, or, you know, want to get in touch. Brilliant. All right. And then on, on Instagram, use your name, isn't it? Uh, Pinnell KG. Yep. Yep. In, in the model of, uh, and that's one thing too, about paying it forward and influence of, um, you know, got in the kind of, I'll post my workouts in the morning, which is completely a, a rip off from Jocko and other folks. Um, but, but also another way to say, Hey, here's something I did. Maybe somebody else likes it and, and have gotten other folks, you know, that says, Oh, you know, those, those workouts, I can't quite read that. What was that? And so again, it's another amazing way to me online to, to share Absolutely. and learn. Now you getting up at four thirty? <laughs> no, I've done it a couple of times. Uh, probably more when I was in the Navy, but no, more of a five thirty or six. And and lately, I'll, I'll get called on it because um, the times are a little bit later. But when I'm in the groove, probably five thirty or six, and, and um, lately probably six or seven. Yeah, well, sleep is important too. Even yeah. even Jocko, we we finished our interview, and then he goes. I thought you were going to ask me about sleep. I was like, all right, <laughs> we're recording and again, let's do it. <laughs> so, Oh, nice. But uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, Kevin, I just want to say thank you. That was a great conversation. I know, you know, we, we spoke and obviously timing is good in, in one respect. I, I really appreciate your perspective and, and educating us all on, you know, what you've learned through your passage. Yep. Thank you very much. I appreciate you being open when I reach out and uh, the chance for us to get together. And, and like you say, hopefully help folks get together now if they're not already doing it. And if they're in the thick of it, you know, maybe tweaks and things and optimize how it's going. Mm-hmm.